geometry hates cars. You know, if you multiply, I mean, I don't have to tell the war on cars this, but if you multiply, you know, all of the journeys by the space that the car occupies in the road, by the amount of road that you need, by the distance that that pushes people apart because you have to build more roads, you are in a Red Queen's race that you cannot win. Hey, it's Aaron Napperstack here. Welcome to the War on Cars. Remember Uber, the taxi-hailing app with global ambition? Uber was going to be the next Google, or Apple, or Ford Motor Company. It was going to reshape our cities, give us self-driving cars, and touch everyone's life every day, everywhere around the world. Uber made its public offering in May of 2019. The result was the biggest first-day dollar loss in the history of the U.S. stock market. While millions of smaller investors lost their shirts, Uber's Wall Street underwriters and earliest venture capital backers made piles of money. As for all the hype about Uber being the future of transportation, that vaporized too. Our guest today is Cory Doctorow. He is a prolific novelist, journalist, and technology activist. And he has been a sharp observer and critic of Uber from the beginning. Dr. Rowe's work focuses on themes of individual and communal self-determination in a world where technology monopolies rule and so much of our cultural, political, economic, and social life plays out on digital platforms over which we have very little control. I had a great conversation with Corey about Uber and what he sees as its fundamental flaws, its inevitable demise, and its likely legacy. But before we get to that, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey all, it's Doug, and I have to admit, I have a problem. With the weather these days, I can never decide on the perfect jacket. I'm like Goldilocks trying to pick the best bowl of porridge. Too cold, too hot, too big, too small. These are not great times for people frozen with sartorial indecision. Thankfully, there's Cleverhood. When it's wet outside, I just throw on my Rover rain cape over whatever I'm wearing without having to think about it, and I'm on my way. Right now, through the end of February, listeners of The War on Cars can receive 20% off anything in the Cleverhood store. Just go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars and enter code ONELESSCAR to receive your discount. It's the easiest decision you'll make. Corey Doctorow. Welcome to The War on Cars. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's it's my pleasure to serve here in the trenches with you in this long, <laughs> grueling war. <laughs> it really is. Are we winning? I'm not... I'm uh, I think arguably we're losing, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah. But reality has a, has a well-known uh, anti-car bias. And so over time, I think our victory is assured. So I reached out to you for this interview because... You wrote an essay in the form of a Twitter thread, which is, of course, how all the all the good essays are written these days. Uh, you called it end of the line for Uber. And your piece starts, Uber is a bezel. Every bezel ends. Uber's time is up. So, so I think we need to start at the start. What is a bezel? So a bezel is a term, I, I believe, coined by Galbraith, John, John Kenneth Galbraith. And it describes the moment in a shell game, in a con game, where the con artist has your money, but you don't know it yet. And it's this, it's this kind of moment of suspension, right? Where uh, 
um, everything is about to change for everyone, right? The con artist ceases to be your friend and goes on the and, and goes on the lam. You go from feeling like you're getting a great deal to realizing that you're being ripped off. Uh, it is, uh, you know, a, a moment of great dramatic moment and also uh, a thing that regularly occurs because, you know, cons eventually end, right? There must have been a moment like this in the Madoff con where people said, wait. Right. And, you know, there's also this defensive mechanism, which is the, the sense that um, if you if you've been doing it for a long time, uh, then you surely should be able to do it forever. And that, you know, if it turns out that it was all uh, built on shaky foundations and it wasn't going to last forever and it couldn't last forever, there's this kind of defensive moment where you're like, no, 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 I'm sure reality is wrong because this thing is very good. And so I just want the good thing to go on. And so could you please adjust the reality? So the bezel probably usually ends when people want their money back. What is tipping this Uber bezel over the edge, do you think? Uber always had this kind of shifting web of stories about how they would become profitable and also how they would become sustainable, how, the, how it would work in the world. So they were like, well, we are going to subsidize people's rides a lot. We're going to lose like 40 to 50 cents on the dollar for several years. And we're going to um, also pay a lot of big bonuses to lure people into driving. We'll, we'll have these like kind of teaser rates where we'll get people into the cars to drive. And then we're going to we're going to do a lot of stuff around the edges. And eventually, like we're going to figure out how to make up our losses with volume, essentially. Right? The old the old dot com joke. We lose we lose three dollars on every bag of pet food we sell, but we're hoping to make it up in volume. So, uh, you know, there were lots of ways that Uber said it could adjust its cost structure. Uh, the first one was that they were going to make us a self-driving car and that that was inevitable. It was just around the corner. They had a research division. There was a race to see who could build the first one. Someday there would be self-driving cars everywhere and their HR expense would just disappear. Uh, they'd be a robot company, not a, you know, a union busting company. That was where they had one of their first problems, right? Which is that um, robots don't exist, right? There aren't, there aren't <laughs> self-driving cars. We're not near a self-driving car. Right. They, there's just no path to the kind of full autonomous vehicle stuff. And, you know, wherever you've heard it, it just turns out to be rubbish. Right. Like there is this um, automation panic at one point where they said, you know, the most popular job in America is truck driver. And you could easily replace heavy rigs, 16 wheelers with a dedicated lane and some, you know, auto follow stuff and LIDAR and whatever. It's like, well, this proposal for self-driving trucks that follow each other on a dedicated lane across America is a shitty train. <laughs> right. Just invented right. a shitty train, <laughs> right? So uh, clearly that that wasn't going to happen. And Uber, you know, had its own version of this. And they, they spent billions of dollars and years and years claiming that they were seriously making a push for a self-driven car. And I, I half of me thinks they were making the push and half of me thinks that it was just this kind of energetic hustle so, so you really think that like the self-driving car pitch might have just been completely a scam? I, I don't claim to have any special insight as to how sincere they were in their stupid idea. But I, I am confident that it was a stupid idea. And one of the ways I know is they had to pay someone else $400 million to take their self-driving car division off of their hands. And uh, 
at the time they'd spent i think four billion dollars on it and it could go less than a mile without a fatal crash so you know that's the first part right is they weren't going to have self-driving cars and so that wasn't going to solve the problem now there's another problem which is that if you could manage self-driving cars geometry hates cars uh, right. You know, if you right. multiply, I mean, I don't have to tell the war on cars this, but if you multiply, you know, all of the journeys by the space that the car occupies in the road, by the amount of road that you need, by the distance that that pushes people apart because you have to build more roads, you are in a Red Queen's race that you cannot win. I, I used to work for uh, Disney Imagineering in Glendale and commute down to Disneyland in Anaheim, and they have been widening Highway 5 uh down in orange county since the first time i visited when i was 18 years old i turned 50 this year it's something like 29 <laughs> lanes wide right. and it's still a hieronymus bosch painting most <laughs> of the day right and so you know geometry hates cars but assuming that you could uh defeat geometry with the power of uh entrepreneurship and gumption and good old american stick-to-itiveness there's another problem which is that uber spent a lot of money on both regulatory adventures and huge subsidies that they paid in order to create the market, right? In order to train people to become riders, in order to eliminate com competition through predatory pricing. So all the cab companies went into business. They just, they basically created an Uber-shaped hole in every city. And the question is, why wouldn't someone else also put self-driving cars on the road and just, just show up on day one to the same investors and go like, you can keep giving Uber money to buy all these self-driving cars, but they're $50 billion in the hole right now. Um, or you could give the money to us. We'll do exactly what Uber's gonna do, but we're not in the hole. So, <laughs> right. so that Uber was, Uber was always going to be uh, a failure, right? But Uber had uh, a huge advantage, which was that it was a front for the House of Saud. Now, SoftBank is the is the executing arm of this. They have eighty billion dollars from House of Saud, and they uh, have done all kinds of crazy things with it, like WeWork, uh, where they have these um, accounting to call them tricks is to like do violence to the noble trick. They have these like <laughs> right. accounting risible lies where they go like, oh yeah, there's the like generally accepted accounting practices, GAAP, there's EBITDA, there are all these ways to measure the health of a company. But we've got another measure where we measure like the intangibles. Like we know that on paper, this company is only worth like a hundred million dollars. But when you count in the vibes, the vibes are like right. super valuable. So their, their S1, you know, which is the prospectus they give to investors, this is how the Saudis got out, right? This is how, this is how um, SoftBank got out is they, they went public, right? As did all the executives who were doing things like starting self-driving car divisions that failed, but who got giant whacks of stock as compensation to, to lure them there and keep them there to do this essential business, whether it was essential because they thought it would work or essential because they thought it would drive an IPO is like, you know, anyone's guess, but it was clearly essential to the future of the company one way or the other. And, uh, you know, the, the, the IPOS one says our path to profitability involves capturing the majority of our total addressable market and their total addressable market was every ride that anyone takes in a vehicle, right? Every mm. train, every tram, every bus, every private car, every taxi in the world. Right. So our, it, our market is all transportation in yeah. the world everywhere. Uber will take a piece of it. But, um, 
the Uber problem is now becoming very clear. So they, they had a lot of cash. Uh, and even with the funny accounting, it's pretty clear that that cash is almost gone, you know, mm. like, like in the last year for, it's gone from like 20 billion to 6 billion. And like, you know, the, it's, it's, they're, they're bleeding out like over a billion a year. The reason this was all significant is it was the same quarter that they had triumphantly announced that they turned their first profit and were on the path to profitability and that investors should definitely pile in and like make the last round of suckers whole. And, you know, like this was this was, um, you know, they were headed for like the thousand year reign of Uber. Right. And what actually happened was there are a ton of countries where you got kicked out of and uh, you had to sell your business to another grifty rideshare company whose books are even more cooked than yours. And you did it with a stock swap. And so now you're sitting on a bunch of shares of like Didi, which was the Chinese one. That Didi is valuing with a, a valuation formula that's even more laughable and tissue thin than yours. And on that basis, you are claiming a profit, right? These one-time balance sheet uh, adjustments that actually aren't worth what you claim what you claim they are and certainly aren't going to recur right like you know uber this is like uber saying oh well we're finally making a profit because we were forced to sell off divisions and we we've got the cash from it is like i'm i'm finally curing my starvation by eating my own arms so so that's 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 kind of the the crux of it here so when you're running a bezel the question becomes how do you continue to rope in the new suckers how do you bring in the new investors and in your own writing, you've pointed to the work of a transportation analyst named Hubert Horan, who has written dozens of articles uh, since 2016, really deep dives dissecting Uber's public claims and financial statements. And there, So Horan released two pieces, and I was writing about both of them. And the second one, this one where he kind of digs into their um, narrative manufacturing, which is like arguably the thing they're best at making is narratives. And he pointed to this uh, glowing New York Times profile of the new CEO that pointed out that he was like not the kind of guy who would run like a rapey frat boy <laughs> boardroom. He's not going to do gray balling where they, they figure out who's a regulator and don't send cars for them so the regulators can't see what the cars are like. He's not going to do any of that stuff that Uber had done before. But what she didn't say, and like, then there's this, it's just this kind of long loving profile where he's like, right, like our, our, C, our CEO isn't like the sociopath who used to be the CEO. Right. He's like hugging his children and like his wife and he are talking about their favorite Broadway shows and like, you know, just making him seem like a lovely chap. But what she never points out is that like Uber's problems were on the one hand that they were a rampantly criminal enterprise run by a rapey frat bro who is a, a <laughs> chronic liar right and on the other hand they were cooking their books and going out of business and you know like maybe they're not going to have as many like harassment suits to contend with now right. that you know they've got like some adult supervision but this guy is lying about his financials right like he is a he is a crooked con man so this was the first thing. And then the second thing is the the laundered scholarship. So there's a lot of poor quality scholarship that um, 
uh, Uber was involved with or directly uh, financed. It gets cited in the Wall Street Journal, which like, again, like this is supposed to be the reality based community, like not the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, which is all like everything is fine and nothing yeah. is wrong and it'll all be fine. But the actual thing where it's like, here's where you should put your money so that you don't lose all your money tends to be pretty firmly reality based. And they're like the the opener to this article citing this research was um, Uber's business has been proven which is a hell of a thing to say about a business that is losing money on every dollar it gets. Right. Right. That, that right. is not a proven. Like, yeah, people like a business that costs less to use than it costs to provide. I, I would like to have very good $80 bourbon at $3 a bottle. And if you <laughs> right. offered it for sale, I'd buy it by the case. You know, it wouldn't help you. So this research was like, oh, well, Uber helped um, uh, communities of color because they were underserved by taxis and transit. And, you know, that may even be somewhat true. There's certainly some people who are credible who say that it's true. Yeah. But when Uber goes away, then what? Right. Like we just have a lost decade of transit advocacy, right. uh, which is the only thing that is actually going to fix things in communities of color that are underserved by transit infrastructure, not uh the, this shell game not this bezel so how, that's that that was the other piece there how do you think uber killed a decade of transit advocacy well because they it created the pretense that we would solve our transit problems with some mixture of gig work surge pricing so this this kind of like they were trying to basically take a supply demand curve like a laffer curve and and turn it into drivers and like just sort of like map it into drivers and cars uh so that we would do it with like like this kind of we would create perfect frictionless markets that would uh uh were perfectly elastic to to go with the demand and then we would um uh we would never need transit right we wouldn't need taxis we wouldn't need transit we wouldn't need walkable cities we certainly don't need bike lanes all you need and and you know of course you you can't have a bike lane in a city full of ubers because that's where the uber parks right um so you know like like ubers and bicycles are foundationally incompatible though when you when you talk to the uber policy guys and i, I talked to them a lot in like 2000 mid 2000 teens mm -hmm. you know they they talked a very good game about you know wanting to mesh with um, a transit-oriented, walkable, bikeable city. They acknowledged that that wasn't really happening. But is there some version of ride-hailing that can work and be beneficial to the city? You know, is there a version of for-profit transportation service that can work and not be so harm harmful to the city? Or is this just is this idea just fundamentally rotten? I mean, transportation is a public good, right? And and it has. Um... Lots of positive externalities that are hard to capture. And that's like the definition of a thing that you cannot run for a profit, right, uh, um, effectively. Uh, and, you know, transportation's dividends arise from doing unprofitable things like connecting uh, poor people who work in ex who live in exurbs and work in cities with efficient links so that they can get to work without having to take extremely long, circuitous transit journeys uh, that deprive them of the opportunity to uh, look after their health, look after their family, and so on. And since the, the benefits of transit are so hard to capture for a private firm, private firms, just, just like with other logistics schemes, private firms just cherry pick the good stuff, 
right? And they fail to deliver on the universality that is that is necessary to call something a transit system as opposed to just a way for rich people to get around. Um, Uber, you know, um, the way that they tried to scale was by uh, enticing people out of other forms of transit and into an Uber, right? That was the whole point of pricing an Uber so cheaply that there were times where like, even if you weren't like paying yourself for the hours that you were missing because you were on a bus, it was still cheaper than like getting on a subway or whatever. Right. They weren't competing with the private car parked at the curbside. Yeah. That was not their competition. It was transit and it was biking and other taxis. And I think they did it on purpose, but even if they didn't, it became clear eventually that that's what was happening. Right. I And you know, Again, when you see that Uber is like our our only defense is to to, to uh, around, you know, the moat that we plan to build around this business is that we are going to be like just synonymous with travel. We're just going to there'll just be like stickiness because everyone rides us and thinks of us when, when it comes to travel. They need to be giant, right? They don't they don't want you to ever not take an Uber because they require so much scale. I mean, it's there in their S1. They require so much scale to be a viable business that, you know, if you, if you take an Uber to the subway station, then it's a huge lost opportunity for them, right? They want you to take an Uber to your final destination. And then when you take the subway and you empty it of people and put each of them in an Uber, the city grinds to a halt. And, you know, again, this was like, none of this was uh, difficult to spot. You know, the the fact that you cannot replace mass transit with with single uh, rider vehicles or two rider vehicles that you just like it just doesn't work ge ge geometrically. None of that was hard to spot. And Uber just kind of like waved around, you know, they jingled a lot of car keys at us. They were like, but but have you thought about self-driving cars? They're cool. And, you know, how about the helicopters? The helicopters are going to be great. And, you know, just all, all this kind of like window dressing. That's to just keep you from thinking too hard about it. And, you know, again, when, when you're on the, um, when you're on the upswing with Uber, right, when you're on, when you're the beneficiary of billions of dollars in subsidy, then it's easy to, it's easy to kid yourself that like, oh, I must just be missing something here. And, you know, again, this is one of the things that differentiates transit from travel is the micro case, the individual case for how to run a transit system is completely unlike the macro case for how to run a transit system. I mean, many's the time I wish that I had a personal helicopter to go to LAX, but <laughs> right. you know, if everybody got to LAX by personal helicopter, it would rain helicopters on Los Angeles 24 seven, just whirling blades and exploding gas tanks everywhere you looked. So yeah. clearly this is not a, an answer, right? It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy. Right. And so, you know, it's fun to fantasize about. I, I'm a science fiction writer. I like my jetpacks, but it's not uh, it's not um, a, uh, a plan. It's a con. Do you feel the same way about Lyft, Uber's competitor Lyft? Sure. Yeah. They're just an also ran uh, Lyft's pretense to being the fair trade Uber was always hilarious. I mean, they were slightly less wage thefty about tips at one point. Um, but Lyft's, Lyft's major investor is Peter Thiel. It's a man who says that women shouldn't be allowed to vote. Like this is, you know, they are not the cuddly alternative to Uber. They're just, they're just another uh, Uber alike. I kind of look at this whole automobile sprawl industrial complex that we have: the car makers, the 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 suburban sprawl developers, the fossil fuel producers, 
And to me, it's all a giant bezel. It's all sure. kind of a con, you know, that we get kind of tricked into believing that we need to have our own single family detached house way out in the burbs. And then we need multiple gigantic gas guzzling vehicles um, to service the house. And then we need all of this arterial roadway and highway to service the far flung cars and homes. And it's all wildly inefficient, expensive and destructive to the environment. Is that the real is the car itself a bezel? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing is like that that's the kelp forest <laughs> and Uber is just like one of the tropical fish that lives in it. You right. know, uh, right. there is a whole ecosystem of this stuff. You know, the pretense that we can keep burning fossil fuels, as you say, and the, the way that we array our cities and the effect on public health and the, the traffic fatalities and all of this stuff. Right. I mean, it's it's really clear that. Um, it's not sustainable. And the way that we make it work is by incurring all kinds of different debt. So we have a carbon debt, we have a policy debt, we have a public health debt, you know, all the people who, who have um, chronic illnesses because of the emissions from cars and, and from roads and whatever we have. Even, a, even just being sedentary, like never walking right. anywhere. Yeah, we have a heat island debt from from roads that change the Earth's albedo. We have like we have all of these different debts, and they will eventually default, right? And we keep rolling them over, uh, but we're gonna hit a, a a wall. Like we're just gonna we're gonna eventually run out of our ability. Like that's why it's a bezel, right? Because the bezel, the the con artist who's running the, the show, eventually has to admit that you can't drive a car in a city that's been burned down. And eventually you just have to kind of confront it and and do something about it. You know, I've got a, a one of the novels I wrote during the lockdown is a, a book, a Green New Deal utopian novel called The Lost Cause. It's about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias wow. after after a Green New Deal transition. And, you know, there the difference between this utopia and a climate dystopia is not what's going on in the world. The world is on fire in my book, uh, literally and figuratively. There are floods, there are fires, there's unitic plagues, there's hundreds of millions of refugees on the move, there's famines, there's all of the things that we know will arrive as a result of climate change. And the difference between that and a dystopia is that everyone admits that they're there and is actually orienting themselves towards doing something about them. They're like embarking on a 200 year program to move every coastal city 20 kilometers inland, hmm. right? Like this is the, you know, so it's the difference between being in a bus that's barreling towards a cliff that even if the driver manages to, to yank the wheel, it's going to roll three times and maim half the people on the bus and being on a bus that's barreling towards the cliff and the driver isn't going to yank the wheel and you're all going to die. Right. And I think that like, you know, actually taking the wheel even if even if you end up in a in a situation that's less than ideal, that taking the wheel is always going to be preferable to barreling over the cliff. And, you know, that's the that's the bezel we're in right now. We are in this moment where we are we're pretending that we can build our cities this way, pretending that we can run our transit this way, that we can source our energy this way. And it would be great if we didn't have to take all of the the pain that we're going to have to take to reorient our productive capacity and our and our lifestyles around remediating climate change um but that's not going to happen right we are going to have to make really radical shifts and you know they won't all be bad like the other thing about this utopian novel is they're living in a utopia like they're actually like one of the things that they do is when the renewable energy isn't available um they all just take a day off <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so right. like you know like and they have and they have 
amazing networked computers that are like Facebook, but not predatory and awful that don't commodify your relationships, but improve your relationships so that they can find other people to take the day off with and do fun stuff. And they live a life of great leisure and pleasure and a life in which the, the existential terror that we have is mitigated by the sense of agency and doing something about it. And that's what I mean by a lost decade. Because we spent a decade just pretending that there was no way to yank the wheel and instead saying, maybe this bus can fly, right? We're going to get to the cliff edge and we're just going to fly because Elon Musk has a flying bus and Uber's got a flying bus. Everyone's working on flying bus technology. Haven't you heard? It's going to happen right after self-driving cars long before we hit the edge of the cliff. How does it end? What do you expect? I mean, even just your sci-fi novelist self, how does the bezel end? Well, I mean, whenever these things end, they sometimes end uh, with a rupture. You just become a liability on the public purse, right? Because we've got to figure it out. Um, uh, there are some times where it goes through like an orderly restructuring, goes through a bankruptcy. It, it might even get life support, right? I mean, part of Uber's gambit is clearly like, or maybe it's plan B is too big to fail. And so it might become too big to fail. You might see some cities assuming it, especially like smaller cities, that um, gave up on bus service in favor of us of an Uber subsidy. In the meantime, it's going to destroy a bunch of people's lives, right? Like it really will. There's a lot of drivers who depend on it. Um, and then, you know, we'll have its lasting legacy, which is the formalization of misclassification of workers through um, Prop 22, which is going to Supreme Court here in California, may or may not survive. And the ballot initiative that they just dumped 100 million into in Massachusetts to basically Prop 22 Massachusetts. Uh, and so you'll have this enduring legacy of, of precarious, uh, formalized precarious work uh, that uh, deprives workers of the right to organize and, and the right to be recognized as workers. So, you know, that's the that's the long term legacy. We're going to have to dig ourselves out of that hole for a long time, you know. Well, Corey Doctorow, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Lovely to chat with you, too. Hey, that's it for this episode of The War on Cars. For more of Cory Doctorow's work, his daily links, his books, his podcast, go to pluralistic.net or the War on Cars store at bookshop.org. We've got some new Patreon rewards, including an official War on Cars water bottle. Go to thewaroncars.org, click support us, and enlist today. If you have not already, we will send you stickers and you will have access to special exclusive content. A shout out to our top Patreon sponsors, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, and the law office of Vaccaro and White here in New York City. Also, Virginia Baker and James Doyle. Thank you so much. You guys are the joint chiefs of the war on cars. And of course, thanks to our longtime sponsor, Cleverhood, for 20% off on the best rain gear for biking and walking. Go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. When you check out, use coupon code one less car. That's good through the end of February. This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Napperstack. Thanks again to Corey Doctorow for taking the time to chat. On behalf of my co-hosts, Doug Gordon and Sarah Goodyear, this is The War on Cars. All of the people who say we're near a self-driving car because some minor subset of the self-driving car problem has improved in some way over the last couple of years are like people who say we have bred this horse to be so fast that it's only a matter of time until it's a, a, a railroad engine.